Amen. Thanks so much, team. May we never lose the wonder, the wonder of God's mercy. The fact is, we're all tempted to lose that wonder from time to time. Just like Jesus told the parable of the soils, sometimes the the worries of the world, sometimes the lure of riches, uh, sometimes uh, just the attacks to our faith, uh, we can be tempted to lose the wonder. And in our passage this morning, the Thessalonian Christians who were very young in the faith, they were tempted to lose the wonder of God's mercy as well. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where God is seeking through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians to renew and restore and refresh our hope in the mercy of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all go through seasons where our faith is attacked. And in those particular seasons, whether it's from within or from without, we need to have our hope renewed. Now, The amazing thing is, God doesn't often use pure reason to strengthen our faith and renew our hope. He often even appeals to our experience of the gospel in the past. Paul is being attacked in the town of Thessalonica. Now let me set the context for what happened here. Paul was on a second missionary journey. He picks up Silas and Timothy. He gets a vision of the man from Macedonia, northern Greece, who says, come to us. And so Paul hears God's call, goes to northern Greece. He starts at a town called Philippi. In Philippi, Paul preaches the gospel of grace. Many people respond to the wonder of the mercy of God. And there's a church planted. But within weeks, there are people who attack Paul physically as well as verbally. And he has to leave town. Really for the sake of the new Christians. He's wanting to protect them. Not so concerned about his own life. The next town he goes to is Thessalonica. A little bit southwest of Philippi. Same thing happens. Preaches the gospel People respond, a church is planted, and sure enough, all kinds of opposition. He's attacked. The Christians at Thessalonica are in uh, trouble or in danger, and Paul leaves there. He goes to a town called Berea, further south. Same thing, plants a church, and within just a few weeks, people come from Thessalonica who caused trouble there, and they caused trouble in Berea. So now Paul is forced to flee to Athens. Same thing happens there. Then he's forced to flee to Corinth. Now we know what Paul's heart is when he enters Corinth. Because he writes to Corinth a little bit later on and says, you'll remember that when I was with you, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. All of these attacks have really had an impact on Paul. But Paul's even more concerned for other people. And he gets word from Thessalonica that these brand new baby Christians are now being attacked by their friends. Their friends who are still worshiping 
idols. And the reason why they're attacking their, their newfound Christian, their, their, their Christian friends is because they're saying that Paul is one of these itinerant speakers, a huckster, a scammer, just like we have scammers on the internet today, that Paul was a scammer just going from town to town to town. Now, you need to know, this was a really popular thing in the first century. There were all kinds of speakers that were peddling all kinds of new ideas and fads. And they fleeced people out of their money. They were con artists. And the Thessalonian non-Christians went to the Thessalonian new Christians and said, you guys are believing a lie. None of this is true. And the Thessalonian new Christians were in danger of leaving the faith and going back to the worship of idols. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 2. Of course, there are no chapter divisions in the actual letters of Paul. But the passage we come to today, Paul is defending the gospel as being true and salvation as being real. But amazingly, he doesn't appeal primarily to reason. He appeals to the experience of the gospel by the Thessalonians. You ever heard of Blaise Pascal? Uh, Blaise Pascal was probably one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. He was a French philosopher and scientist. Blaise Pascal was not a believer uh, in his early years, but his sister was. He was always struck by the life that she lived before him. One day, Blaise Pascal was in his horse carriage and it slipped off of a bridge. There he was, teetering between life and death. And as his life passed before his very eyes, he wasn't thinking about all the scientific evidences or philosophical arguments for the existence of God and the truth of the gospel. No, as his life hung in the balance, the only thing he could think of was the reality of the gospel that he saw in his sister's life. And then and there he was converted. One of the most brilliant minds the world has ever known, converted not through reason, but through a personal experience of the power of the gospel through the life of his sister. As we read 1 Thessalonians 2, you're going to see Paul, again and again, appeal to the experience of the Thessalonians for evidence of the reality of the gospel and the truth of salvation in Christ. Now, Christians today, in part, rightfully so, are scared to death to talk about experience. I mean, after all, you could have a false experience you could also fall into emotionalism where you're always looking for the next experience. Be that as it may, God, and through the Spirit, of course, Paul, is not as concerned about this error sometimes as we tend to be. If you are a Christian, you have been born again. 
And you have, in fact, experienced an outpouring of supernatural power upon your life. And God points us to that from time to time to restore and refresh our hope. So with that as a backdrop, we're now finally ready to read the passage, 1 Thessalonians 2. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8. And again, listen to Paul's appeal to experience. It starts right off the bat. Through you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. You you see Paul here defending the gospel against the charge of these itinerant speakers that were just running around peddling new ideas. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery like the itinerant speakers, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, like even some of our televangelists today. They were like that back then. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. In other words, they weren't seeking the applause of men, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because He loves us. He longs to restore, refresh, and renew our hope. And sometimes He does that by appealing to our experience of what we know is true. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would fill us with Your Spirit God, we do understand that the gospel involves content. We do understand that there are rational defenses of the faith. But God, here in this passage, you appeal uniquely to personal experience. And so God, help us to go there and help us to be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we're going to look at four evidences that the gospel is true, but not normal what is called apologetics. Look, I've done all the reading. I I was a skeptic for years. So I know there are, are sound, wonderful, rational arguments for believing in the existence of God, uh, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, Uh, and the reality of the gospel, and the inerrancy of Scripture. I know those arguments, but Paul's going to give four arguments that the gospel is true that is different than those categories. So, let's dig in. First of all, 
Keep on hoping in the gospel that brings real power. Again, look at the appeal to experience in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. In other words, that Paul's preaching of the gospel, the Thessalonians know, was not without effect. They know it came with power. Now, we're told about this power in chapter 1. In verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says that, that the Thessalonians who were involved in idol worship in different idolatrous temples, they turned from idols to the living and true God. They were transformed in their desires. So Paul points them to the truth of the gospel by appealing to their experience of the power of the gospel. Like I said, I, I was a skeptic for a number of years. I read all kinds of books. But what really reminds me of the power of the gospel is not what I've read in books. When I was 20 and I was converted, without me even trying, Whereas a day before, I had no interest in spiritual things. When I was converted, all I cared about was spiritual things. I didn't try to do that. That happened supernaturally in my life. The other thing that happened is I had never even owned a Bible nor opened one. And the day I was converted... I couldn't stop reading the Bible. It's not because someone told me I should read the Bible. It's not because someone gave me all kinds of arguments that the Bible was the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God. No. I was changed. Whereas I had no desire for God in the past, all I longed for was to know God. Whereas I had no hunger for Scripture in the past, all I hungered for was the Word of God. That's what Paul's talking about. Okay, yes, there are all kinds of rational defenses for the faith. But what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, when they're being attacked and they're in danger of turning their back on the hope of the gospel, Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. You know what you experienced. Don't doubt that. And so I ask you to look at your own life today. What experiences of the power of God remind you the gospel is true? Look, there are going to be smarter people than us in the world. There are going to be skeptics that come up with all kinds of arguments to throw at us. And, and we need to be able to defend our faith rationally, reasonably. But God's saying, look, they can't argue with your experience of the power of the gospel. And reflect on those things when your faith is challenged and your hope is sagging. Two uh, alcoholics were at an AA meeting one night and they'd gotten to know each other over the months 
And one night, the one alcoholic said to his buddy, I've been born again. I've been converted. I've turned my life over to Jesus Christ. The other alcoholic said, you don't really believe all that crazy stuff, do you? I mean, you actually believe that that Jesus turned water into wine? And the newly converted alcoholic said, "Uh, I can't say anything about Jesus turning water into wine. But I can tell you, Jesus has turned this alcoholic's wine into food. And his beer into furniture. And his whiskey into clothes. The testimony of Christians of all ages is that the gospel changes lives. And a changed life is evidence in 1 Thessalonians 2 of experiencing the power of the gospel that is real and true. Keep on hoping in the gospel that brings real power. And then secondly, keep on hoping in the gospel that stirs true courage. So Paul just appealed to the Thessalonians' experience of power. Now he's going to remind them of his own experience of power when he was with them. Look at verse 2. He says, Though we'd already suffered in Philippi, been shamefully treated, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel to you in the midst of great conflict. Now, I want you to pause and think about what Paul's writing here. There's something about his courage, his boldness, in the midst of suffering and shameful treatment that he believes that if he brought it up and mentioned it to the Thessalonians, that they're going to be reminded that, oh yeah, (laughs) the gospel really is true. So, So, how would, how would God do that in their lives? Well, again, I think sometimes we give Paul a free pass like he was some super saint. Now, don't get me wrong. He, he's amazing. But he wasn't Superman, folks. And I think some of us think not only was Paul Superman, but he was Superman without kryptonite. We know from his letters that Paul got deeply discouraged. We know from his letters that Paul went through bouts of depression. We know that he suffered anxiety at times. Again, he told the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And he's appealing to the Thessalonians by saying, in spite of how I was treated and how I suffered, I found boldness in God to preach the gospel to you. And in him reminding the Thessalonians of that, he is anticipating that they'll say, oh yeah, that's right. The gospel really must be true. Because in spite of all the suffering and pain, Paul still preached the gospel. I've not been bashful about me sharing my own brokenness with y'all in these particular areas of being a people pleaser, being an approval addict, wrestling with fears 
and worries and anxieties. Now, why do I do that? Well, partly I do that because I want to model the fact that none of us has arrived and all of us need the gospel. And I hope that my vulnerability gives you the freedom to be honest about your brokenness. But the other reason I do it is so that you'll know that if you see any boldness or courage in me, you will know it's the power of the gospel because you'll know it's not me. And see, here's the thing. People come to me all the time and say, Bob, you talk about being an approval addict and a people pleaser, but we don't see any of that in your life. You preach the truth boldly and you talk about it and you don't care what anybody thinks. Okay, if that's true, you know the gospel's true. Because that's not me. Because everything in me cares about what you think. And if I preach in such a way that you don't think I care what you think, that's God. And that means that we can appeal to these elements of experience in our lives and and in the lives of others to point to the reality that the gospel is true. All of Christian history is testimony to the reality of the gospel because in the face of suffering, persecution, death, being sawn in two, getting beheaded, getting pierced through with the spear, all through the history of the church, God's people have exhibited a courage that is beyond explanation. And the only explanation is that the gospel is true. Salvation is real. And the Christian life is supernatural. Keep on hoping in a gospel that stirs true courage, that brings real power. Thirdly, keep on hoping in a gospel that produces sincere motives. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Again, if you don't understand the context of the first century, you're not going to get 1 Thessalonians 2. You have to understand that there were scores and scores of these charlatans that were running from town to town to town proclaiming these newfound ideas, fleecing people out of house and home. Or, just like in our social media culture, they were narcissists who simply wanted to find out how many followers they could have. See, times really haven't changed that much. So Paul is saying, we weren't out to fleece anyone. We weren't after your money. We weren't after your applause. We weren't even out to please you. But in fact, we came to you with the purest of motives. Look at verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know. Again, he's, he's appealing to the experience of the Thessalonians regarding the presentation of the gospel. And what we learn here is that our lives matter as much as our words when it comes to sharing the gospel. How we live matters as much as what we say. 
And what Paul is saying is if you really want to know whether the gospel's true, notice how the power of the gospel pulls people away from self-advantage and toward advantaging others. See, hucksters, shysters, scammers, they're out to advantage themselves at the price of disadvantaging others. I mean, isn't that what televangelists, many of them that, are, that we know have like five jets and three Lamborghinis and eight mansions, I mean, the, the stuff that creates cynicism in the hearts and minds of the world, let alone the church, isn't that what the, the complaint is? They're, they're out to advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. And Paul says, one way you can know the gospel is true is wherever the true gospel goes, people are actually willing to be disadvantaged in order to bring advantage to others. That's not hucksterism. That's not charlatanism. That is amazingly powerful truth. You know, the the charlatans, they're trying to bring pleasure to themselves. And Paul says, but wherever the gospel goes, we try to please God. That's why he says in verse 4, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, and that's how we speak. What he's saying there is people talk differently when they're trying to gain their sense of validation from others and trying to suck approval from others. Those people talk differently than people who realize they get their approval from God. You see, when we are convinced the gospel is true, and that therefore, by being united to Christ, we are declared pleasing to God, that frees us from having to suck approval from other people. See, when you're trying to suck approval from other people, then you're very prone to flattery. You're going to butter people up and say nice things about them, but the whole reason is you, you can't wait for them to say something nice about you. Well, that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says if you trust in Christ, you've been approved by the only being that really matters in the universe. And if you really live as one who is approved of by God, then you don't need approval from anybody else. And therefore, A, you can be bold and courageous, but B, you can stop using people to try to get your own ego stroked. And Paul says, that's power. And so he says, we speak, in verse 4, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Now, this could be confusing, and we're going to talk more about it in a future passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But if we know Christ then we're justified by grace through faith in Christ. That word justified means to be declared righteous. It means to be approved. 
So when we're in Christ, we are approved by God. That is, we are declared that our identity is as those who are constantly pleasing to God because of our union with Christ. And because we know we are pleasing to God, Paul says, we then strive to live lives that the Bible reveals are pleasing to God. You follow that? You are already in Christ pleasing to God. That then frees you to live a life that seeks to please God in every respect. It is understanding that you are pleasing that gives you the power and the motivation to live a life that is pleasing to God. And again, we'll talk more about that in the, follow, in the, in the coming passages. And then he also says in verse 6, we never sought glory from people. We never came with flattery. We never came with a pretext for greed. Paul is reminding us that when we are truly converted by the power of the gospel, our whole motivation is transformed. So Paul points to motive as an evidence of the truth of the gospel. And then fourthly and finally, before we come to the table, keep on hoping in the gospel that creates loving hearts. Look at verse 6. We did not seek glory from people. On the contrary, he says, verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8, becoming so affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share not only the gospel but our own lives. Again, I want to point us to gospel apologetics, the defense of the faith, things that renew and restore our hope. Paul is not appealing to philosophical arguments here. He is not appealing to scientific evidences. You know what Paul's saying here? The most powerful defense of the truth of the gospel is one thing. Love. You can try to go toe-to-toe with people. You can argue and your arguments are so solid that they're almost irrefutable. But someone will still refute you. But what is irrefutable is love. People just can't argue with love. That's why Jesus said, all people will know you're a Christians by your fine-sounding philosophical argumentation. All people will know you're Christians by your stances on all sorts of cultural issues. No, I'm sorry, people. Okay, I'm about to be bold. Okay, I'm scared to death. You know, this is the power of the gospel. God said people will know we're Christians by our love. 
Where's the love, folks? Where is it? Because I'll tell you, I don't see very much of it. And it starts in the church. See, Jesus said, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And he primarily meant for one another in the church. The most powerful apologetic the world could ever see. And oh, by the way, for those of us who are struggling right here, right now, with the reality of the gospel, the most powerful apologetic and defense of the faith and the stirring of hope that we could give each other is to love each other in this place. And then Jesus went on to say, greater love has no one than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. The most powerful apologetic is not merely speaking words of love to each other or about each other, but actually being willing to die for each other. Paul says, I was that among you. He wasn't boasting. He wasn't boasting. He was just saying, Thessalonians, you understand. You're concerned about me being a huckster and a charlatan. I'm willing to die for you. What kind of charlatan is willing to die for somebody else? A charlatan wants other people to die for them. And Paul says, you know, the gospel is true. When you've experienced people willing to lay down their lives for you. And of course, that's what our founder did, right? Jesus literally laid aside his glory in heaven, took on human flesh, lived in this broken world, suffered abuse and shame, was beaten, pummeled, and crucified, and mocked from his rebel creatures. And he laid down his life anyway. And that message of love is what is changing the world. And Paul says, you can't argue with that. And that's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. This is, a, this is a dramatic portrayal of the gospel. It's visible. It's, it involves the senses. <laughs> to use the text, it involves experience. You can't come to this table without experiencing this table. Jesus took bread. He held it. They saw it. When he broke it, they heard it. When they ate it, they tasted it. Again, the gospel is to be experienced and not merely assented to. Then after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for the remission of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you, and give thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we understand that uh, these elements remain bread and remain the fruit of the vine.
And yet we also know through your promise, in 1 Corinthians especially, that there's real power here. Now we may not feel it, but we're to understand that if we come in repentance and we eat and drink in faith, that there's real power here. Power that changes us. Power that emboldens us. Power that gives us the desire, motivation, and power to lay down our lives that others might be advantaged. That at this table, not only do we feast on your love, but we're reminded to love others. Father, it's called communion. We're not only communing with you, but again, this is communion with the community. We are communing with each other. And so the Lord might the world know we are Christians by our love. In Jesus' name, amen.